Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Duffy Robbins and was recorded on Sunday, June 26, 2022. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. And as always, you can join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Duffy. Uh, good morning, FaithBridge. Good to see everybody this morning. Those of you who are joining us Right here in the auditorium, if you're over in the communion service or joining us online, thanks so much. If we haven't met yet, my name is Duffy Robbins, and uh, it's my privilege again this week to lead you in the study of God's Word. Um, We've probably all been in a a situation or a conversation where, where somebody does something or somebody says something, and it's pretty clear right away they don't get what's what's going on. Like they, they they've totally missed the point. They don't they don't get. It. Like uh, a, a guy proposes to a girl, honey, uh, would you marry me? And she says yes. And he goes, oh, that's awesome. My wife is going to love you. Uh, she she loves weddings. She'll be so excited. Or uh, you know he doesn't get it, right? Or well, what about this? What about uh, you know a, a combat flight squadron commander? Uh, he, he's asking for volunteers for a kamikaze mission. This is. This is a suicide mission, and, and, and so he, he shows the target, uh, the flight plan, he goes through the entire operation. When he's done, uh, one guy in the back raises his hand and says, where do we land our planes when we get back? Clearly does not understand uh, the mission. I think one of the very real risks of, of, of worshiping in a place like Faith Bridge, where, where the fellowship is, is, is so great, and the worship is awesome, and the, and the donuts are plentiful, uh, you know, folks are congenial, fairly well-behaved, uh, is that in a place like that, you can come Sunday after Sunday, week after week, have a wonderful experience, and still somehow miss the point of the whole thing. As most of you know, um, over the last few months, we've been doing a journey through the Gospel of Luke, studying the life and teachings of Jesus. Last week, uh, we began working through Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, where we explored what it means to follow Jesus and, and, and how does Jesus define uh, the discipleship relationship. Uh, this week, we're going to continue our study uh, in Luke chapter 9, where Luke provides no less than eight short case studies in which people seem to completely miss the point of that discipleship relationship. Uh, They they encounter Jesus, God in the flesh. They're invited to walk with him uh, and and yet invited to follow him, to share in his life uh, and mission. They they somehow uh, totally miss the point. And and, and you can read through this whole chapter later uh, when you get a chance, uh, but you'll see this. uh, Verses 37 to 43, the issue, for example, is lack of faith. Verses 44 to 55, it's, it's fear. Verses 46 to 48, it's pride. Uh, Verses 49 to 50, it's a contentious spirit. 51 to 56, unholy anger. 57 to 62, three case studies in a row of of misplaced priorities. This morning, we're going to look at only one of those case studies. We're going to zoom in on only one. And in this case study, uh, the disciples uh, missed the point, frankly, because they are just plain hotheads. They're just plain hotheads. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible but would like one, just raise your hand. These folks coming down the aisle will be happy 
to uh, give you one. Just put your hand up there. Luke is one of the first four books of the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels. Luke's account of the life and teaching of Jesus. And uh, we're going to actually be reading in the ninth chapter, beginning in verse 51. Luke 9 chapter, verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Uh, we see it every day, don't, don't we? People, people who, who just seem to miss the point. So you got folks who get out of their car uh, to use the drive-through ATM machine. Uh, or, or, or people who stop off at Dairy Queen on the way home from the gym. Uh, or or, or <laughs> people who tidy up the house before the cleaners arrive. Uh, by the way, these are the same people that wash the dishes before they put them into the dishwasher. Uh, or how about this? People who use their highlighter to highlight every single line on the page. Do we have any uh, promiscuous highlighters? Okay. <laughs> All right, yeah. Or how about this, people who add bacon to their veggie burger? Uh, or or remember, remember a few weeks ago when the executives uh, who run the dollar store raised all the prices to $1.25? They, they, they don't get it. This particular case study uh, in missing the point begins in verse 51 with Luke telling us that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. He's on a journey to Jerusalem. Now, before we go too deeply in the text, let me just say, if you read right through Luke chapter 9, it, it might seem kind of uh, weird that we'd focus on, on this passage because it sort of feels like the incident we're going to look at is just one of those things that happens on the way to something way more important. But one of the discoveries you make over time in the Christian life is that it's precisely those little incidents, those little incidents that happen on the everyday journey that proved to be the test of authentic discipleship. It's like we talked about last week. Some people are probably more willing to die for Jesus than they are on the daily journey to live for Jesus. But it's significant in this case that Jesus, we're told twice in three verses, has set his face towards Jerusalem. Luke repeats this two times. He set his face to go toward Jerusalem. It's Luke's way of emphasizing that, that Jesus has a clear, rock-solid mission. Uh, in fact, it's pretty likely that when, when Luke wrote these words, he was actually thinking of a passage in the Old Testament um, that, that points to the Messiah. In Isaiah uh, chapter 50, verses 7 to 8, we read, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. <clears throat> he who vindicates me is near. Luke wants us to understand that, that Jesus had set his face like a flint to go toward Jerusalem. He, he knew his journey was going to end in his death, but he knew he was born for precisely this journey. And look at the, look at the text. No sooner does Jesus begin this journey to Jerusalem then we see him facing both disgrace and shame. 
Look at verse 53. The people in the village did not receive him. The people in the village did not receive him. Uh, if you've ever been to one of, um, of, one of Liam Neeson's films over the last few years, um, you know they sort of follow a pattern, right? How many have been to a Liam Neeson movie in the last five years? Okay, all right. Yeah, they're, they're rated R, but... Yeah, uh, uh, it, 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 it's kind of intriguing because you see this. In the first part of the film, uh, you see him as an ordinary guy, just an average dad, husband, businessman, right? Just a guy who wants to live his life and experience love. So in the movie Taken, uh, he starts out as a dad who's trying to reconnect with his daughter. In Taken 2, he's a father and a husband surprised on a business trip by his daughter and his estranged wife. In Taken 3... Uh, he's an ex-husband trying to reconcile with his wife in the unknown. Uh, he's a mild-mannered botanist who wakes up after being in a four-day coma to find out somebody's trying to steal his wife. Uh, and in The Honest Thief, he's, he's a widower. He's kind of a, uh, like a gentleman crook who decides to turn himself in and go straight because he has met the woman of his dreams. It, it's pretty much the same in every movie. He sort of starts off as this mild-mannered, uh, you know, totally in control, wannabe, family guy. But then, but then there's a turn in the store, right? Usually a kidnapping uh, or, or a, a government plot or somebody crosses him. And that's when we watch him employ his peculiar set of skills <laughs> to blow up, stab, shoot, and strangle his way back to his life of caring and nurture. <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's funny because in, in some ways you see sort of a similar trajectory in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55. Let's, let, let's just set the stage, first of all, by reminding ourselves that typically Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. They, they hated each other. Uh, but remember, Jesus had set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And, and the straight line journey from Galilee to Jerusalem meant you had to travel smack through Samaria. So uh, as sort of a gesture of goodwill, Jesus sends James and his brother John uh, on a courtesy call to make arrangements with the elders, the people in this one small Samaritan village just to gain their permission to stay overnight. And at this point, from what we can tell, uh, you know, James and John are, are polite. As far as we know, they're, they're cool. But then the people of the village say, no, no way. No, you, you just want to use us as a stopover. You don't respect us. You are not welcome here. And that's when things get ugly. Uh, if, if you've read much uh, in the Gospels, you may already know that James and John uh, could be a little bit of a hothead. They could both be a little bit uh, ill-tempered. Uh, we know, for example, in this very chapter, chapter 9, verse 49, that it's John who shouted down a guy who was casting out demons in Jesus' name because John didn't consider that guy to be one of the official disciples. Uh, in, in fact, Mark tells us in his gospel, Mark chapter 3, that James and John were such blowhards that uh, Jesus even nicknamed them the sons of thunder, which to my middle school mind just makes me think of some sort of tag team wrestling, you know, the sons of thunder, you know, world wrestling. But it's just a fact. It's just a fact. James and John could be hotheads. And apparently this Samaritan snub 
made James and John angry enough that they wanted to kind of use their peculiar set of skills to bring down a storm on this little Samaritan village. Look at verse 54. They asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, it's kind of stunning, right? Just just how matter-of-fact they are about, Lord, would it be good for us just to carpet bomb these people so they can (laughs) understand the love of God? (laughs) But then just when they're ready to go all Liam Neeson on the village, Luke tells us, verse 55, Jesus rebuked them. Jesus rebuked them. Now, now it's interesting. This word rebuke, I need to explain. It is a very strong word in the Greek. In fact, typically, this word for rebuke was used only, only for the the rebuke or the exorcism of a demon. Uh, And I should probably explain here that that whenever whenever, uh, Jesus rebuked you as if you were a demon, uh, that was considered by the other disciples as kind of a bad sign. Uh, we don't know exactly what Jesus said in his rebuke. We know it was a stern rebuke. But the text simply says, verse 55, Jesus rebuked them and the disciples went on to the next village. Here's what we do know. We do know that earlier in this very same chapter, Luke 9, Jesus, when he commissioned the disciples, told them, look, you should expect, you should expect that there are going to be villages where people will reject your message. When that happens, don't panic, don't freak out. Uh, In fact, he says in Luke chapter nine, verse five, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them and go to the next town. This was actually a fairly common custom of of the Pharisees. When they crossed uh, from Samaritan territory into Jewish territory, territory. It was just a, it was a way of sort of symbolizing uh, their utter disgust and, and, and judgment. They would just shake the dust off their feet on the way out of town. Like, like when Sooner fans uh, cross the state line after the Texas-Oklahoma game. You know, they, Jesus said to his disciples, look, you're going to face some opposition. Get used to it. Shake the dust off your feet and move on, move on. But that kind of response didn't sit well with the sons of thunder. Their response to rejection was to fight back. They wanted to unleash a little shock and awe. They wanted to protect God's reputation. They needed to teach these pagan Samaritans a thing or two about what happens when you cross a gracious, merciful, loving God. (laughs) But Jesus rebuked them. Jesus rebuked them. And the question is why? Like, like, why? Why did Jesus offer such a serious rebuke? I mean, weren't they just being good disciples? Weren't they just boldly living out faithful discipleship? Weren't they just taking a strong stand for Jesus? Well, if you look a little more closely at the text, you start to realize what we're seeing here is a couple of people, a couple of disciples who who seem to miss the point because they're making two very common mistakes. And they're pretty much the same basic mistakes you see anytime somebody falls short of authentic discipleship. Mistake number one, James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. Mistake number two, James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who they were. 
So let's, let's, let's begin with that first mistake. They, they hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. Uh, you may remember that earlier in this chapter, chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus asked the disciples this question. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We talked about this last week. And after a couple of misfires, uh, Peter answers the question. He says, you're the Christ of God. You're, you're the Messiah. And, of course, we know from Matthew's account of the conversation that Jesus says, you're right, Peter. You're right. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And, and, and you may have noticed this last week when we studied that passage, that no sooner does Jesus confirm his identity as the Messiah than he says in the very next verse, verse 21, don't tell us to anybody. Just, just don't, just keep this to yours. Don't, don't, don't tell it, which seems kind of odd, right? In light of the fact that in the opening verses of Luke 9, uh, he, he, they begin with Jesus commissioning the disciples to go out and proclaim the kingdom. In fact, we know from Luke 9 verse 10 that they have already gone out and begun to spread the good news of the coming of the kingdom. So, why does Jesus commission the disciples to proclaim the coming kingdom, but instruct them to tell no one that he's the Messiah? The problem is the Messiah, the disciples, they couldn't get their head around this basic fact, this central fact, that what was unfolding here was not just the coming of the kingdom. What was happening right before their very eyes was the coming of the king, the fulfillment of the kingdom. And this king was going to rule in a very different way. You have to remember, uh, the disciples still pretty much assumed that the Messiah was going to be some kind of uh, strong man, a political hero. That, that's what everybody thought. That, that's, that's why earlier in this same chapter, you see even Herod starting to feel a little paranoid about this mysterious uh, Jesus figure. But of course, Jesus was not, you know, some rival king groping for, for earthly power. Uh, he, he didn't care about pomp and privilege and, and power. He was a king whose coronation was going to come with a crown of, of thorns. In fact, go back and read verse 22 in Luke 9. Jesus tried to explain this to the disciples. He said, look, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus tried to tell them. He, did, he didn't come to be a potentate or a, or a teacher or, or to show us what it really means to be human or to help us be more like Mr. Rogers or, or, or live our best life. He could have done all that without suffering, without the cross, without raising up from the grave. Jesus, Jesus didn't come here to be a superhero. Jesus didn't come to be a life coach. His mission was to be the crucified savior. He had set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And James and John pretty much missed that point. Of course, Jesus knew there, there, there would come a day uh, and a time when they would proclaim this good news in all of its fullness, but that day was not yet. So he said, look, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. I think maybe the best way to understand it is, <clears throat> let's say, 
Let's say your uh, 10-year-old asks you where babies come from. I had to get a sip of water for that. Uh, you know, let, let's say your 10-year-old asks you where babies come from, and so you tell them. But then you say, now, honey, if your four-year-old little brother asks you about this, do not say a word. You can just tell him to ask mom. What about dad? You can tell him. But, but, but it's funny, isn't it? you, you, you know, Jesus knew, Jesus knew it'd be better for them not to tell the story than to tell the story and get the story wrong. And you can see with this little fracas in Samaria, that's exactly what happened. They did get the story wrong, not because there wouldn't someday be judgment and, and a triumphant king, but because that judgment wasn't theirs to deliver and because this was a very different king. So the first reason James and John missed the point is because James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus is. But the other issue, mistake number two, is James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who they were, with who they were. You know, there, there was an arrogance here, wasn't there? I mean, James and John were acting like the whole mission hinged on them, like, like somehow the pushback from this little, you know, out of a nowhere little Samaritan village is going to thwart the entire mission of the God of the universe unless they stepped in to save them. It's like two extras on a, on, a, on a movie set in a massive crowd scene who don't realize they're just playing very small parts in a very big story. Yeah, yeah. James and John had a part to play, but there was a much bigger story here that they didn't fully understand and God was the author of this story. Plus, uh, who were they to call down judgment on the Samaritans? Like, you know, to assume that the Samaritans were too far gone. You just write them off and pretty much say, they're not on our side, Lord. There's no hope for them. Let's just, let's just smoke them. What James and John hadn't come to terms with was it their bigotry against the Samaritans? Their eagerness to firebomb the village was in its own way a rejection of Jesus and his kingdom. So if judgment and fire for every sinner in town was the order of the day, they were in trouble too. They weren't safe either. That's why Jesus rebuked them in the strongest and most serious terms. He was basically saying, look, they hadn't fully come to terms with who they were and they hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. And folks, the reason we need to hear this passage this morning is because in these crazy days of, of angry headlines and, and contentious public discourse about everything from masking uh, to politics to moral issues to, to, to even kids' sporting events, we need to understand one of the marks of true discipleship, one of the truest proofs that we get the point of this king and his kingdom is when something gets in our way, when somebody says something we don't like, instead of thunder and judgment, we respond with the grace and the patience of Jesus. And frankly, most of us are not very good at this. You know, I mean, let's be honest. Our response to the culture when they don't welcome us with open arms 
is not unlike James and John. We, we say we're willing to carry our cross, but what the world often sees from those of us who call ourselves Christians is, is, is if you cross us, we're going to crucify you, and what we are willing to carry is a grudge. And I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet that I'm not the only one here who's preaching to himself. I know this. I know this temptation. I'll hear somebody issue a statement, post an opinion that I think is an insult to Jesus, or worse yet, something I don't agree with. And, and I want to immediately make a fiery response, right? I want to post a tweet, fire off a, an email, call down judgment. I want to step in and protect God's reputation. And I know there are some sons of thunder along with me in this room this morning. Now, here's the problem, folks, with us modern-day sons of thunder. For all of our loud noise and angry posts, our thunder tends to breed more lightning than rain. And while one can bring refreshment, the other just brings wildfires and destruction. Authentic discipleship is often played out in the ordinary, everyday little moments of life when we're on our way to do something else and then for some reason, uh, the, the journey doesn't go the way we want it to go. Somebody says something, somebody does something. Maybe it's a spouse or a child or a coworker or a preacher or a politician or some Yahoo online and we're ready to call down fire. But the point, men and women, is that this is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And we'll completely miss that point unless we're prepared to seriously consider two questions. Who do you think he is? And who do you think you are? You know, every one of us in this room this morning, every one of us watching online, everyone in the communion service, all of us, we're a part of this story in Luke chapter 9. Verse 51 to 55, because some of us in this room, we're like the Samaritans. We're like the Samaritans. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you, you, know, you don't really know Jesus like the Samaritans. For whatever reason, you are not ready yet to welcome Jesus into, into your life, into your uh, heart, into your marriage, into your, into your workplace, into your dating relationships. Um, and, and to you, uh, well, let me say, first of all, we're glad you're here. Like we're, we, we, we are so grateful for you listening. Uh, we don't want there to be any boundaries that might make you think somehow when you're at Faith Bridge, you're in, you're in enemy territory. You're welcome here. Jesus literally died on a cross to break down those boundaries. But I also want to point you to what I think is one of the most sobering parts of this whole passage. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, after this whole uh, drama unfolded and the Samaritans had turned Jesus away from their town, from their village, the scripture says in verse 56, Jesus and the disciples went on to another village. They went on to another village. And maybe the Samaritans thought, oh, well, you know what? We're not going to just let this guy march into our lives because he claims to be the savior or maybe they thought, it's not, not that we don't like Jesus. This just isn't a good time to welcome him in. Or, or maybe some of them thought, oh, you know what? We're going to catch him on the return trip. It's striking. 
because there was no return trip. Jesus went on to another village and he never came back. Jesus said, in essence, okay, all right, you don't want anything to do with me? Have it your way. This is, this is one of about three or four instances in the entire New Testament where, where people turned Jesus away and he left. That they wanted a life, they wanted a town without God, and that's just exactly what they got. And that, men and women, is a sobering thought for our life and times. We want a life without God. We want a public square without God. We can have that. We can have that. We better think carefully about what we're going to be left with. Isaiah 55, I think, puts it well. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you're here this morning and you're in that first group, you're, you're sort of standing among the Samaritans, that's maybe an invitation you're going to want to take seriously. Now, I, I suspect that most of us here this morning are in the second group. We're, we're, we're disciples. We're, we're walking with Jesus. Um, but what we need to hear in this text is a challenge in those uh, everyday mundane encounters along the journey to allow Jesus to live out his grace and love and patience through us. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to take up your cross and, and follow him. And we can't do this on our own. We cannot. Uh, all of us are sinners like James and, and John, quick to speak, slow to understand, haunted by resentments and moods and temptations and, and prejudices. But the great news, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins, so that we could be delivered from his judgment and our prejudices and raised with him into a new life and a whole new kingdom. In fact, I, I think in some ways the most encouraging part of this passage is the part you don't see. It's the part you don't see. Because what we do see here looks just like a story of failure. But if that's all we see, we have completely missed the point of the gospel. Because even though James and John failed Jesus, Jesus didn't fail James and John. You know, even with their hot-headed, uh, bozo, trigger-happy moves, Jesus didn't just give up on them and say, okay, all right, you know what? You're done. I should never have recruited you to be a disciple. Uh, turn in your robe. You're not going to be in the Bible. Uh, you're, you're finished. <laughs> you know what? That's not what he did. You know why? Because he's not just a recruiter. He's a redeemer. He doesn't just charge us. He changes us. He changes lives. If you're here this morning and you are bound up and bounded by anger and you thunder off at people around you, Jesus can change your heart. He continued to pour into these guys, encourage them, love them, believe in them. And what we discover when we see the whole story 
Well, James actually went on to be the very first of the apostles to die for his faith. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He was killed by the sword under the judgment of Herod Agrippa. You say, what about John, the, the, the hothead, the, the loudmouth? What's his story? Well, let me close our time this morning with a few verses from a letter John wrote to the persecuted Christians in the early church. These words are from 1 John 3, beginning in verse 13. John wrote, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, God, we sons of thunder. Quick to speak, slow to listen. We, Lord, are people of great temper. We are passionate people. In one sense, this is a gift because you can stir our hearts to love you and serve you and worship you. But it can be turned by the enemy. Sometimes even by the slightest phrase, a little post or a little comment or a little action, and all of a sudden, instead of sons of God who share your patience and love, we become sons of thunder who spread lightning, wildfire, and destruction. God, help us, forgive us this morning. By your Holy Spirit, do a deep work in our lives so that people might see in us, even when the village does not receive us, may they be met with love and grace and joy and peace and gentleness. And Lord, for those here today who are standing among the Samaritans, who have yet to make that choice to embrace you, I pray that right now, right now, while you are near, in this moment, would you invite them? Would you encourage them, Lord, to pray to you, to confess their sin, to accept your death on the cross as payment for that sin, to believe that you raised from the dead so they could live a whole new life with you, be forgiven, washed clean, and Lord, that they might know this God of glory. We pray all this this morning, Lord, with open hearts. We ask this in the name of our King, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.